This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hi, and welcome to the East Trauma Cast. My name is Dave Morris. I'll be the moderator for this episode today. On this episode, we will be discussing small bowel obstruction with Dr. Martin Zielinski. Dr. Zielinski is currently Associate Professor of Surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota in the Division of Trauma, Critical Care, and General Surgery. Martin did medical school at the University of Minnesota before completing his residency and fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. Martin is currently the Medical Director for Trauma Clinical Research at Mayo. He also serves as Chair of the East Section of Emergency General Surgery. Joining us also for our conversation was Dr. Levi Proctor, one of the co-moderators of the TraumaCast. Dr. Zelinsky has published numerous papers in the field of small bowel obstruction. And as many people can attest, small bowel obstruction is a very common problem that most surgeons, at least general surgeons, will face throughout their career and can be a somewhat frustrating disease entity to treat. Martin, Levi, and I had the following discussion via teleconference. Okay, well, Martin, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you about this and to share some of the research that you've done. Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's a real honor to be able to uh, present uh, not only the data that uh, we've uh, demonstrated over the last several years, but also what's uh, coming up in small bowel obstruction management. Great. And uh, also on the line with us is our co-moderator, Levi Proctor. Levi, thanks for being with us, too. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. Well, Martin, let's jump right into it. Uh, how how did you get interested in small bowel obstruction? Uh, I understand it happened early on in your career. How did you get into it, and, and what led you there? And tell us a little bit about that. So a piece of advice that I got uh, by a visiting clinician uh, when I was about a third or fourth year resident was that choose something that's not sexy in surgical research because people will uh, um, not be competing for those uh, those uh, spots and uh, for, for presentations and papers and things. And so my non-sexy thing I chose was small bowel obstruction. And the reason why I chose small bowel obstruction uh, is because when I was a chief, there was a, a patient that I was convinced did not have uh, any uh, need for operative intervention in, uh, in the setting of his small bowel obstruction. He had multiple medical problems. And so uh, the decision I made was to put him on to a medical service. And, of course, about eight hours later, I got a call from them saying that he wasn't looking so well, uh, and we ended up taking the operating room uh, with, you know, emergently, and he had uh, strangulation obstruction and dead intestine we had to resect. Uh, and it struck me that, you know, on a patient that I was absolutely convinced um, that did not need an operation, uh, ultimately ended up having, a, a, you know, uh, the worst setting that you can have in, the, in bowel obstruction. And so that drove me to try to figure out, is there a way that we can actually predict patients that need interventions in the setting of small bowel obstruction? Uh, and so my research is basically all stemmed from that one patient. So tell us a little bit of background about small bowel obstruction, kind of the scope of the problem, and maybe what the, you know, the, the, the problems or the variations that you see in practices out there, and, and kind of frame the discussion for us a little bit. Yeah, you bet. So... Small bowel obstruction accounts for 12 to 16% of all surgical admissions 
to general surgery services in the United States every year. And actually, 300,000 operations are performed uh, in that year for small bowel obstruction, so it's an enormous problem. And it's not just a problem for general surgery, but it's a problem for orthopedics and ENT and all the other surgical specialties and medical specialties that will care for people uh, as uh, postoperative small bowel obstructions or, or uh, small bowel obstructions complicating multiple other uh, uh, medical comorbidities and uh, procedures are, are uh, a huge issue. Um, the traditional management, as, as we're probably all aware, has been to not let the sun set or rise on a small bowel obstruction. Essentially what that means is within a 12 to 24 hour period, if you had a patient traditionally that uh, had a small bowel obstruction diagnosis, that that patient was going to go to the operating room. And that's a, a fairly quick turnaround, but the reason for that is because uh, the concern for strangulation obstructions. They didn't want to have people progress to bowel ischemia um, and have a much more complicated postoperative course, increased risk of death uh, and other complications. And so they thought uh, traditionally up through the 70s and early 80s that earlier operative intervention was best. Now, there was a pendulum swing with that and uh, because people uh, thought that they were operating on too many uh, patients essentially a lot of negative explorations or at least non-therapeutic explorations. And so nasogastric uh, tube decompression, IV fluid rehydration, and time became the standard of care. Unfortunately, a lot of strangulation obstructions then became uh, missed. And so uh, it was this pendulum uh, shift of, of, of from too much intervention to too little intervention. And I think now we're coming back towards uh, perhaps more of an appropriate amount of interventions on patients with small bowel obstruction. So uh, I was taught that certainly, and I, I don't know, Levi, if you were as well, I, I heard that saying, never let the sunrise or set on a complete uh, bowel obstruction. Um, but would, talk a little bit about that, you know, classifying complete versus partial, and how, how, how good are we at that? And, and is that something that is even has a place in modern era of CT scans and all the imaging that we're able to do? What, what are your thoughts on that? So the, the term has been around for decades uh, to not let the sun rise or set on small bowel obstruction. Uh, but my impression is uh, the first time it's actually been published was by Dr. Muka, who's uh, uh, the creator of our division here at Mayo Clinic. Uh, he created essentially an acute care surgery service for us, and that was his mantra. Um, the definition, though, of a partial versus a complete small bowel obstruction is essentially what was used uh, to delineate who needed to go to the operating room emergently. That definition actually relied on x-rays, uh, so plain abdominal plane films. If there was colonic gas on an abdominal x-ray, then the patient was considered to have a partial small bowel obstruction and non-operative management was warranted. If the patient did not have uh, colonic gas on x-ray, then the patient had a, by definition, complete small bowel obstruction and uh, urgent exploration was uh, indicated. If that definition is, is extremely out of date with the uh, modern uh, uh, radiology uh, imaging techniques such as CT scans. Um, we did a, a study, it was an abstract, only never been published, but it, it turns out that if you have a colon on CT, you will see gas in it. 100% of patients that had colons had gas with at some point in their, in their, um, uh, uh, in their colon on that CT scan. And so the x-ray images are much less sensitive then the CT scans are, and obviously they're much more sensitive for diagnosing this. And in the, at least in the United States, a vast majority, over 50% of patients with small bowel obstruction, will actually get a CAT scan. And so that diagnosis uh, is out of date. 
Um, and so really the, the question is not partial or complete small bowel obstruction, but who needs an operation, uh, whether it's emergently or those patients that won't improve during that hospital stay, and is there a way of predicting who those patients might be? Levi, uh, at your institution, do uh, you still hear the complete and partial words thrown around? I know we still hear them uh, a little bit around here from people. Uh, it's used intermittently, but it's mostly that it's a, it's a partial small bowel obstruction, and that's usually where it stops, and then it becomes, well, what do the images look like, and what's their exam? Um, it's rare anymore for me to hear the residents talk about a complete bowel obstruction, unless it's a, a large bowel obstruction. I, I don't really ever hear that that term ever mentioned. And what the what the residents and clinicians actually mean by complete and partial is operative versus non-operative. They don't mean complete and partial. They mean this patient does or does not need to go to the operating room. So, Martin, you, you brought up the idea of uh, predicting or knowing, and that gets us a little bit into where I know a lot of your research has been with the gastrograph and challenge. Tell me how you uh, you know got interested in gastrograph and challenge and how that sort of came to the forefront. So the gastrograph and challenge, the first randomized controlled trial of this uh, was back in the early 1990s, and that showed, uh, it was from Israel, and showed a benefit to uh, gastrograph and administration. Uh, decreased length of stay, I believe, decreased operative interventions uh, required on those patients that were randomized to the gastrograph and arm. Um, there were multiple other uh, studies uh, that were performed after that, um, most of which show similar kinds of results, some of which did not. Uh, they were not easily um, comparable studies, even though they were randomized controlled trials. They had used different kinds of oral contrast media. They had different um, durations of time before they would check an x-ray. They had different volumes of contrast media. They had different inclusion-exclusion criteria. Some would include malignant obstructions, uh, for instance. Um, my original study did not look at gastrograph and challenge. It was purely looking at predictors of operative intervention in the setting of small bowel obstruction. And the reason for that is because we did not at the Mayo Clinic have gastrograph as a part of our protocol or protocol at, at all, in fact, uh, for the management of small bowel obstruction. So, and so retrospectively, I couldn't look at gastrograph. Sorry to interrupt there, but uh, talk a little bit about that that initial study about prediction and, and you know how good were we at predicting who was needed to go to the operating room and who was going to respond to? You bet. So uh, I'll even start with an earlier study performed by uh, Dr. Mike Saar, who was uh, one of my uh, big mentors here at, at, at the Mayo Clinic, um, going through training when he was a senior resident at Johns Hopkins University back in 19, early 1980s. Uh, he actually did a study, and this was before common uh, CT, or CT scans were commonly done, though. Uh, so based on plain film, he asked each of his uh, Hopkins attendings, surgical attendings, uh, to predict whether or not each patient would need to go to under, undergo operative intervention during a hospital stay. And as it turned out, he was, those attendings were, less, were correct, excuse me, less than half of the time. So worse than a flip of the coin as, as to the answer of yes or no, they would have to go to the uh, operating room. Now, times have changed. We have CT scans. We're probably not quite as bad as that these days, um, exclusive of all the other information that we have. But um, what I did at that point, uh, knowing how poor we were uh, historically, was try to figure out if there were specific criteria that we could use, both clinical, uh, radiographic, and laboratory-based, that would predict who was going to need an operation as well as who would uh, have strangulations. 
Um, and as it turned out, retrospectively, uh, we had identified four separate uh, clinical features uh, that were associated with the need for operative intervention, and those included uh, on CT scan imaging, uh, mesenteric edema, and the lack of the um, uh, small bowel feces sign, um, as well as intraperitoneal free fluid. In addition to those three CT image uh, findings, uh, a history of vomiting um, was indicative or, predict or associated, excuse me, with uh, the need for operative intervention. The problem with that study, again, it was retrospective, um, so I didn't have the ability to capture some of the data points I otherwise wanted to. Uh, one of the main things that I thought was going to be predictive was the duration of obstipation. And uh, it turns out, at least we are here at this institution, we're very poor at recording how long patients were obstipated for, uh, so I couldn't capture that data. And the other thing that concerned me was how vomiting could potentially uh, differentiate needing the operative intervention or not, as 88% of the patients actually were vomiting in their history uh, prior to uh, admission to our institution. So that didn't make sense. If, if the vast majority of patients were vomiting, how can that uh, discern the uh, need for operative intervention? So I wanted to do more. And so from there, tell us about what you did next and how that progressed. So the next uh, study that we performed was a prospective observational study looking at exactly that. So the goal was to validate and or refine that model. When we looked at those four features, um, it was around 90% predictive when you had four out of the four uh, operative or, uh, clinical features uh, for operative intervention. And it also turned out that more than half of those patients, when they had four out of those four features, if they were not operated on within uh, a 12-hour period of admission, they had uh, a 50% mortality as opposed to 0% mortality in the patients uh, that were operated on uh, in an emergent fashion. So I wanted to uh, look at that question as well as uh, not only to figure out uh, or to refine the uh, uh, clinical features, but potentially add in obstipation and really question vomiting and also to figure out if earlier intervention was uh, in improved mortality outcomes. And so, again, just to be clear, these are patients who show up, they don't have peritonitis, they're not septic, they're not sick, they're sort of, uh, you know, not the patients that have clear indications for a laparotomy. These are the patients that seem clinically stable, and yet they have these features. Those are the ones who go and, and those who don't. Is that that's correct? Uh, not entirely correct. For the prospective study, we included everyone. The only patients we excluded were those that had... Um, uh, history of cirrhosis or known intraperitoneal free fluid in the past. And the reason why is because we wanted to uh, differentiate those uh, with intraperitoneal free fluid to see if that was from the bowel obstruction rather than, you know, from uh, ascites. Uh, we also excluded uh, patients with recent laparotomies within six weeks. For the study after the one I'm discussing, you're absolutely correct. We we did exclude the patients that we um, knew had to go either had to undergo operative intervention emergently uh, for signs of strangulation. But for this prospective study, I included everybody just so we had, you know, the reference point of, uh, of the worst patients as well. And so then that led to further refinement of the, of the signs and symptoms, obviously. Uh, why not just stop there? <laughs> it wasn't good enough uh, is a short answer. Um, so we did, you're absolutely right. We refined them. So we validated that interperitoneal, excuse me, that uh, history of obstipation, 
uh, as well as uh, um, the presence of small bowel feces sign on CT scan and mesenteric edema on CT scan, all three of those were predictive of the need for operative intervention. Uh, we eliminated vomiting because in the prospective model, as I wasn't surprised, it did not uh, uh, distinguish between operative intervention or not. Um, in addition, it turned out intraperitoneal free fluid didn't add to the model. It was or predictive, but it didn't add by having that fourth feature in there. So we just kept it down to three to try to make it as easy as possible. And so when you had three out of the three out of the three features, 29% of those patients had strangulation obstructions, which is actually more than most of the traditional signs of uh, of uh, strangulation, uh, and is on the uh, order of like peritoneal uh, irritation, portal venous gas, pneumatosis. Uh, and so it's, uh, when having all three of those features, it's extremely predictive of uh, strangulation. In addition, almost 90% of the patients uh, at some point that had three out of the three features needed an operative intervention, regardless if they had strangulation or not. Uh, and so we could uh, essentially distinguish with very good uh, positive and negative predictive value who would and wouldn't require operative intervention, uh, not only emergently, but also during that hospital stay. But as I said, that wasn't good enough because we wanted to get uh, even better than 85 to 90%. And so we added in the gastrograph and challenge as the next evolution in this process. So um, just so I'm clear, the, the, you said a lack of small bowel feces sign. So if, if, if they did have small bowel feces sign, uh, that was not predictive of somebody who needed an operative intervention, correct? Yeah, so it's very odd to think about. And, and every time I, I talk about it, I have to check myself and make sure that everybody else understands what I'm talking about. So the small bowel feces sign, what it is is feces in the small intestine, which, you know, you normally think, well, feces is in the small intestine. Well, I'm not quite right. It actually is what looks like stool on CT scan in the small intestine. Small intestine should have succus entericus, which is a liquid. Once it uh, has stasis associated with it and the bacteria have had a chance to grow uh, and, and uh uh, repopulate, uh, that's when it leads to a stool-looking formation. Uh, and that's what we're seeing on the CT scan. So it implies stasis. Um, and so it is an abnormal finding, but it is a uh, it is predictive of a good outcome in small bowel obstruction. And the reason is, is for exactly that reason, is that uh, stasis implies that it wasn't an acute uh, change in the uh, uh, conformation of the intestine. Therefore, the chance of uh, strangulation is likely lower. And so you said that uh, you added the gastrographin to the model to try to increase the predictive ability or the, the sensitivity or specificity. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, once we figured out who needed to go to the operating room emergently, um, we needed to look at all the other patients um, that uh, didn't necessarily need to go to the operating room at that moment, but we weren't sure if they were going to ultimately need an operative intervention or not. Uh, and the gastrograph and challenge, I thought, could potentially help with that and uh, increase our predictive uh, abilities even further. And so we, uh, the, the protocol, uh, as it was, and it still stands, uh, at least our institution today, is that uh, of those patients that have strangulation symptoms or signs, including peritoneal irritation, uh, fever, white blood cell count, and some of the other traditional signs, uh, in addition, we consider a sign of strangulation being those three out of the three features. And again, those are the lack of small bowel feces sign on CT, mesenteric edema on CT, as well as a history of obstipation for 12 or, 12 or more hours. If you have three out of those three features, then that was also a sign of a, a strangulation because 
as I said, 29% of the uh, patients will have uh, strangulation. And so we would send all of those patients to the operating room. And then the rest, which is approximately 20 or 30 percent of the uh, of patients that got admitted for SBO, believe it or not, so it's quite a high percentage. Um, and then those patients that remain uh, with zero, one, or two of the clinical features, uh, we needed to know what to do with them specifically. And the gastrographin challenge would then be administered to them. Uh, and what the gastrographin challenge is at our institution, there are many different variations of this protocol throughout, uh, you know, different practices, of course, but we use gastrographin. It's uh, 100 cc's diluted into an additional 50 cc's of water. We uh, place an NG tube, make sure that the patient's uh, stomach is decompressed for at least two hours through that NG tube bef before we administer gastrographin. And the reason for that is, as, as most people know, the gastrographin pneumonitis is a, uh, a causes ARDS, and so we need to avoid any type of aspiration. Uh, and as a matter of fact, at least at our institution, we have not had any aspiration in over uh, six or 700 patients to date at least. And so once that gastrographin is administered, we let it um, percolate, if you will, and uh, if the patient complains of nausea or vomiting to the nurse uh, or other abdominal pain or other symptoms, then the tube will be placed on suction. But if not, then uh, it, it's clamped, and the gastrographin can then um, go through the gastrointestinal tract. We give it an eight-hour period. At eight hours, if we obtain an x-ray, and if we see contrast in the colon, we consider that a successfully passed gastrographin challenge, meaning that the uh, chances that that patient will require operative intervention during this hospital stay are less than 10%. If they don't uh, have gastrographin in the colon on that x-ray, uh, then uh, the chance of requiring operative intervention is more than 90%. So we have increased the uh, uh, predictive value even more. Uh, I should also mention that uh, a, sex, a successful challenge can be a bowel movement as well. So if a patient has a bowel movement before that eight-hour period, then that's also considered a success. Levi, are you guys using this uh, in your institution? Yeah, we use the gastrographin challenge pretty much in the exact same way uh, that Martin describes. Um, I do run into uh, an issue with uh, who's failing or who has nausea or intolerance to the gastrographin challenge because it can be somewhat vague sometimes. Yeah. depending on the level of the resident that's involved. So how do you – who makes the ultimate cutoff in saying, yeah, this was definitely a failure, do not reattempt the challenge, and you just goes to the, he or she goes to the operating room? Well, that's a very interesting question because it, it that's where our practice, I think, is a little bit different um, based on our, you know, the surgeon's preference. The ultimate decision maker – or not the ultimate, but the – uh, first decision maker as far how the patient is doing is, is the nurse that's taking care of the patient because they're the ones best suited to identify if the patient's um, having problems and, and needs that gastrographin uh, evacuated. Now, the question then becomes, if we don't see gastrographin on that plain film and the patient doesn't have a bowel movement, what do we do? And that's where it gets a little murkier, at least at our institution. Some will repeat that uh, gastrographin challenge. Uh, my practice, however, is to consider that a failed gastrographin challenge because the patient's gastrographin was sucked out due to symptoms. Now, there are patients that uh, are at extremely high risk for operative intervention, uh, and we all know the patients that we want to try to avoid operating on at all costs due to potential enterotomies, fistulas, uh, and just hostile abdomen. And I can't fault anybody, quite frankly, for 
doing their best to avoid operator intervention by repeating gastrograph and challenging those patients. That's my opinion, not based on any science, though. And so do you have uh, any – so I struggle sometimes with, the uh, you know, the residents will tell me, oh, yeah, they had a bowel movement. Like, how to define that at resolution of a small bowel obstruction, especially with gastrograft? And now, should this be a, a one-form stool and that's success, or should it be a form stool followed by a bunch of liquid stool suggestive of diarrhea? Or do you guys even uh, put it, break it down to that degree? We don't break it down to the degree. You know, we don't count smears for sure, but it doesn't have to be formed or unformed. It can be, um, you know, as long as the patient has what, it, you know, most people would consider to be a bowel movement. You know, I guess that's harder to define, but um, that's what we go with. A smear wouldn't count, but something more than that is probably sufficient. So one of the, I think one of the the things that some people worry about by doing the gastrographic challenge is, you know, one of, the, one of the traditional teachings about small bowel obstruction is that you've got to really decompress the intestine really well because as it gets dilated, it, uh, intraluminal pressure goes up, transmural pressure goes up, ischemia goes up, and you're, you may be, you know, heading towards perforation. And so by leaving the NG tube clamped for eight hours potentially and then adding sort of a cathartic uh, you know, material into the lumen, the, the the risk is that potentially can you hasten perforation? Can you you know can you make the uh, uh, can you make the situation worse? So in in since we've been using it, have you had any evidence of that? Have you ever gone in and found gastrographin in somebody's belly from a ruptured bowel? Uh, it's a it's a clear liquid, so it'd be I guess visualizing it would be hard unless you had a fluoroscopy or something. But uh, the answer is no. We've had a few perforations in these studies that I've talked about, but. Um, I mean, equal amounts in the gastrograph and a non-gastrograph in arm. So there's no, uh, and, and we're talking a couple out of hundreds of patients. So there's no real way of, uh, 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 I just don't think it's possible that gastrograph would promote a, uh, a perforation. But we didn't really talk much about why gastrographin potentially works. Now, yeah, is, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you bet. So this has uh, never really been proved, um, but... The important part of gastrographin, not only does it, it, it is its quality that it can be, you know, it's radio opaque, it can be seen on X-ray, uh, but more importantly for the therapeutic benefit potentially is that it's hyperosmotic. And so when you administer a hyperosmotic uh, material or fluid to the intestinal tract, the theory is that the edematous portion of the small intestine that's uh, affected by the obstruction that edema could be potentially drawn into the lumen of the small bowel due to the osmotic effect and uh, uh, help alleviate the obstruction by uh, minimizing the amount of edema at, at the point of obstruction. Whether or not that's true, we don't really truly know, uh, but that, that is one of the working uh, theories, and I think it makes some sense. And so a patient comes in, they, they, they don't have clear indications, go to the operating room, the, they get admitted for the gastrographin challenge, and uh, you see contrast in the colon. Then what do you do after that? Uh, so we actually have uh, protocolized this and, and empowered our nurses uh, to be able to manage these patients uh, once that happens. And so they're able to order the x-ray. Uh, you know, we, we have an order sheet, but we check the box that says the nurse was, is to order the x-ray at uh, uh, the eight-hour mark because you know, it's hard to know exactly when that eight-hour mark will be, and then call us with those results. And so then one of us will look at the x-ray, ensure that we know what we're seeing, 
and then uh, then once we uh, verbally agree that it's uh, correct based on the radiology report and our impression, uh, then the nurse is empowered through that protocol ordered, ordering set to HEPLOC, or excuse me, TKO the IV fluids, uh, put the NG tube to uh, um, uh, clamped, uh, clamp the NG tube, and uh, uh, administer clear liquids. And so once that happens, uh, the patient's diet is advanced as tolerated uh, over the next day or so. And if, if tolerated, then they go home. So it's an oral challenge is sort of the final step. Yes. And Levi, is that the way that you guys do it as well? Yeah, pretty much. If they, uh, We pretty much let them carte blanche after a, a liquid trial uh, that they can pretty much eat whatever they want. We do obviously advise them, hey, you know, your bowels are pretty thick and then not happy, so you probably shouldn't be eating hamburgers and stuff right off the bat. But some of them do it and are successful, but we do basically the same as Martin has talked about. How, how, uh, Martin, how do you or do you apply this to the patient who comes in with obstruction secondary to ventral hernia? Uh, do, do you use that at all in any way to help you uh, guide your operative management outside of the standard surgical indications for uh, surgery for a bowel obstruction? Uh, no is the answer. So the patients that have incarcerated or strangulated incisional or any kind of uh, uh, hernia, internal, external, uh, they they should go undergo operative inter intervention immediately, not undergo gastrographic challenge. Um, having said that, uh, there are two potential methods in my mind or, or patient situations that potentially could be uh, used a gastrographic challenge on. One would be patients with hernias, known hernias, uh, you know, ventral hernia uh, or something where it's reducible, uh, clearly not the site of obstruction, uh, but has a small bowel obstruction secondary to another process in the abdomen, usually adhesions or something like that. That's actually a relatively common uh, scenario. As long as you make sure that, that that's not the hernia that's obstructing, then, then feel free to use it. The second one is there are patients that have profoundly challenging hernias to fix. Morbidly obese patients, prior uh, infections, um, it, you know, you can name a whole host of uh, uh, patient comorbidities that would increase their risk. And as long as you recognize the uh, potential for strangulation and, and the presence of incarceration, uh, we have used it with a modicum of success on some of those patients. Now, they come back. That's the issue. But you can at least get them through the first few days, um, potentially, and, and uh, you know, optimize them, if you will, for operative intervention. You know, nobody wants to be doing that kind of case in the middle of the night. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Martin, you mentioned a, a couple of sort of uh, specific patient populations. Tell me about gastrograph and challenge in, say, early post-op. Is this an ileus or is this an early post-op obstruction or malignant obstructions, um, sort of those situations where, you know, it, it's a little bit different than the uh, than the standard patient comes into the ED with nausea and vomiting kind of thing. What is gastrographin useful there? What do you what are your thoughts on that? You bet. So you you mentioned two specific clinical scenarios which are different from each other. First was the early postoperative patients, which in my mind is within six weeks of an operative intervention, and then there's a the malignant obstruction. So I'll, I'll hit those separately because they are distinct uh, questions. So the early postoperative uh, small bowel obstruction patients, they were all excluded in all the, in the studies that I've, I've referred to. And those are a different patient population. Uh, and the reason is just there's a different process going on, early adhesions that usually will resolve on their own. Or the chance for uh, operative intervention actually is quite higher, quite a bit higher in those patients because, because of the complications. 
such as uh, dehiscence and uh, uh, enterotomy or, or something like that. And so those patients are different. Uh, but once you rule out an urgent need for operative intervention in those patients, make sure they don't have any of those uh, kinds of conditions, and that you're trying to figure out do they indeed have an ileus or is this a postoperative small bowel obstruction, there is perhaps some benefit. Uh, we did a retrospective study here on, on those exact patients. We found no benefit, no difference in, in uh, patients. However, anecdotally, um, not based on data, but anecdotally, uh, I've had and, and uh, I've been told about several patients that uh, we just couldn't operate on for different reasons. They're outside, you know, a 14 or so day window from their lap, big laparotomy. There are Whipple patients that people just aren't willing to go back in on. Those kinds of situations, um, perhaps the gastrographic challenge uh, has helped or at least has been administered, and whether or not it helps, it's hard to know. Maybe at least it's reassuring that things are patent and will eventually go through. Uh, yeah, as one of my as, yeah, sorry, Dave, for yeah, as one of my uh, uh, um, colorectal staff told me, they're closed in the open position rather than closed <laughs> in the closed position, if you will. Okay, and uh, what about the malignant obstructions? We see a fair number of those. Yeah, th now those of course are, are everybody's uh, challenge. Uh, the patients are essentially dying. They have uh, carcinomatosis, uh, uh, generally speaking and fixed obstructions that, you know, for all practical purposes, the therapeutic effect of gastrographin is not going to make them better, um, at least in the long term. Now, we have studied this as well. Uh, there are, what we found is that we were successfully able to get the patients out of the hospital sooner if they were administered gastrographin rather than just traditional management, but that they those patients came back. And so... In my opinion, in people that have carcinomatosis and malignant small bowel obstructions, the less time they spend in the hospital, the better. Even if it's recognized with a readmission, I think that that's more time with their family, more time potentially getting chemotherapy, um, those sorts of issues. I, I think uh, the gastrographin is beneficial. Even though they'll come back and we won't cure anybody, uh, it gets them out of the institution. What about uh, post-bariatric surgical patients? They don't really have a gastric reservoir. You still place an NG and do gastrographin in those folks? Yeah, we do. Now, I haven't looked at those uh, specifically, um, but we treat them exactly the same um, as every other uh, small bowel obstruction patient. You know, of course, their gastric reservoir um, is, is small, and I mean, that's a restrictive procedure, obviously. But, you know, you would still treat a traditional small bowel obstruction patient with an NG2B compression, no matter how big or small their stomach is. There are patients that have uh, distal obstructions that then have dilated uh, remnant stomachs. And sometimes we'll put in gastric, uh, you know, G-tubes um, radiographically. Um, our, our radiologists can be fairly talented at this. Radiographically, based on usually on CT scan, if they can get a G-tube into that remnant stomach, that's another effective way of gastric decompression. Levi, how about uh, how about you? Do you have any specific, uh, you know, challenging patient population that you use this in? Or uh, we we deal with um, an inordinate amount of uh, post uh, bariatric surgery uh, bowel obstructions and complications. However, our institution does not perform bariatric surgery, but we do. As as Martin said, we do. Uh, like we basically have our own fellowships in gastric bypass complications, but we do the same type of. Uh, protocol, put the NG tube in, assuming they don't have signs on their CAT scan to suggest internal hernia uh, and things like that. We're very 
anxiety provoked to operate early on most gastric bypass bowel obstructions. So if they if their scans don't look very spooky or have any weird signs, then we usually will try this method to uh, delineate that. And we use the perk of the remnant with a remnant uh, G-tube not infrequently for that reason as well, not only to decompress to hopefully get them over the hump so that their gastric remnant doesn't explode, but then also to be able to put gastrographin down it to study them. And Levi, now that you mentioned it, uh, you know, we see probably not as many uh, postoperative bariatric procedures perhaps as you, uh, but we do see a fair number of intussusceptions uh, in some of these patients and at least here are starting to lean away from operating on them. Do you see that, in, 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 unless they're in setting a bowel obstruction perhaps, do you see that and what are you doing with those patients, particularly in bowel obstructions? Yeah, we do see that the, it's coming more frequently, not just with bariatrics, but that we will get intussusception consults from the ER or from the floor for various different reasons. And the great majority of them all resolve on their own. And we will use the gastrographin challenge in those people to prove that, uh, that stuff goes through. I think sometimes it's just a static image of a dynamic function of the bowel, maybe peristalsing at that time, and it's not truly the the intussusception that we're all trained to operate on and resect. So I think it's some of it is that our scans are so good now that they can show you that, but it doesn't necessarily indicate that they need, they need an operation. So we're victims of modern imaging technology. Correct. Martin, is there anybody in your mind that should not get a gastrographin challenge? Well, I mean, of course, patients with uh, clear signs of strangulation. Okay, outside of those folks, what do you think? Um, so I have gotten a few phone calls from other clinicians saying, well, my patient's allergic to contrast. Um, <laughs> that's not the contrast that we're talking about. <laughs> I have never met a patient that's allergic to gastrographin. I understand it does exist. Um, so I would not give it, obviously, in that setting, um, but I have not personally ran into that yet. Uh, the other patient population is ones that are at high risk for um, uh, 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 aspiration. So patients with uh, traumatic brain injury, longstanding or acute, I suppose, or other types of uh, issues with uh, um, their, their airway or, or something like that, those I might try to avoid. The other interesting patient population uh, are the ones that refuse nasogastric tubes. Um, you'll find a fair number of recurrent small bowel obstruction patients that say, you're not putting that in me again and again and again. And so we'll flatly refuse, which, of course, is their right. In my opinion, due to the risk of aspiration, I, I do not administer gastrographin and, and will treat those as best as I can in a traditional way without a, a, an NG tube. Some of my partners uh, think differently and will administer that to them, um, but I just think the risk of uh, aspiration is too high. Just let them drink it. Is that what you're saying? Levi, do you guys do. let them drink it? No. Uh, no. Uh, most of us uh, yet, uh, not all the partners do this every time as a protocol base, but there's a few core groups that kind of subscribe to it. But, yeah, if they do not have an NG tube, we basically uh, – put the fear of God in the residents if they let them drink that, that uh, it's just not worth the risk to that patient to put them, you know, on a life-threatening chemical pneumonitis. We actually require a consultant to, or, to order it if uh, they don't have an NG tube, just for that reason. Which is an yeah. attending in every other Yeah, an attending surgeon. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, okay. Well, uh, Martin, what do you? What's your sense? Is this is gastrograph? It sounds wonderful. Has it been widely adopted, or, 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 and if not, what are the barriers to it? And how do you see this? You know, what do you see the future of the gastrograph and challenge in small bowel obstruction? 
so has it been widely adopted? Um, I don't think it's been widely adopted. I think it's catching on and it's becoming more popular as the years go by. Um, but for instance, uh, East is running a, a multi-institutional prospective observational study uh, in this very topic, and just under half of the institutions did not have a gastrographin challenge, um, which is nice to be able to have patients enrolled that don't have this uh, ability. Um, so that's good from one sense, but uh, um, it'll allow us to figure out, you know, is the gastrographin truly uh, beneficial potentially on a, on a multi-institutional level. Can I ask a question, Mark? Go ahead. Uh, so say you have the person who passes the gastrographin, they tolerate the, the PO for 24 hours or whatever is comfortable by the clinician, they go home. If they come back within a short period of time, do you reapply the same algorithm or do you consider them a failure and they get surgery? Uh, the answer is yes to both questions. We do reapply the algorithm because invariably they come at, you know, 7 p.m. or midnight or something. They never come during the middle of the day. Of course. Uh, and uh, as long as they don't have strangulation obstructions, I don't see a harm in uh, readministering the gastrographin challenge. But now we're talking a different patient population, so we're talking essentially the multiply recurrent small bowel obstruction uh, or, you know, the bowel obstruction that never really truly improved. Um, of course, uh, patient conversation needs to be had and the, the uh, comorbidities and the potential operative complications need to be uh, brought to mind. But by and large, in my mind, that's that's a failed management of whether it's crash graphic challenge or traditional small bowel obstruction, that's by and large failed management and, and probably should strongly consider operative intervention at that point. What do you do, Levi? Yeah, that's kind of – I consider them mostly, unless they have a lot of comorbid disease or they're, we know that they're a very hostile abdomen or a frequent flyer that every partner is operated on, we typically consider yeah. that a failure and, and go to the operating room. What about, uh, let's say uh, – Let's say you're at a place where you don't have the gastrograph and you don't have that capability. How long should you let somebody sit with an NG tube? Like when, <laughs> when, when is when is failure of non-operative management? When can when can you go ahead and uh, you know declare defeat and say um, things are not getting better? I'm going to answer that. In a, I'm going to answer a slightly different question first, if you don't mind, Dave. <laughs> so my my first the, the answer the question that you didn't ask is what about the institutions that have gastrograph and challenge? Can you that don't want to operate on people, uh, meaning they have too high a comorbidity, something like that, or the patient wants to stay, you know, locally because that's where they're from. And in my opinion, uh, administering gastrograph and challenge and going through that protocol is perfectly appropriate uh, to use as a triage tool to see if they need to be transferred. I think this does a couple of good things. One, it avoids automatic transfer to a tertiary referral center um, just when any patient has a small bowel obstruction. Uh, that they don't want to operate on. And secondly, it improves, I think, the patient's quality of life um, by avoiding that transfer closer to home, less, you know, uh, transferring, uh, is, you know, there's expense associated with that all, of course. Um, and the the actual question that you answered, or excuse me, that you asked, so our protocol says three to five days. So there, there's no magic number here. It depends on a lot of different factors. One is the patient. Um, sometimes it takes a long time of uh, convincing a patient that they need operative intervention, uh, especially the people with multiple recurrent small bowel obstructions who have had two or three operations in the past. They're not real excited about undergoing another one. Um, and so it might take an extra couple of days um, just to make sure that they're convinced they don't need uh, intervention. Second is what if that day two is on a Friday? Uh, a lot of institutions won't do 
semi-elective procedures on Saturday and Sunday, and so you have to wait till day five. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are a couple of issues with that. Um, again, it, it goes, boils down to the patient. You need to have a conversation with them on what they're thinking, what's best for them, uh, and, and their medical treatment. Does that uh, sound like a familiar discussion, Levi, to you in your neck of the woods? Yeah, uh, very, very, very similar. Um, it, it, the patients we struggle with the most are the ones that uh, have had, we know they've had multiple abdominal operations, had prior fistulas, fistula takedowns, uh, and just had, you know, very dense adhesion uh, scar formers. So those ones, once we get to know who they are after several hospitalizations, we, we kind of extend our time period out um, until we know that they're, uh, but then it's not going to pass, and it's all it's all judgment based on that person's uh, decision making. Yeah. For me, in my practice, I think that's some of the hardest things. Those patients that really have very strong contraindications to surgery due to high risk, you know, radiation history and things like that. Um, when do you kind of have to take the bull by the horns and say, yeah, this isn't getting better? And and, and I don't know that I have a good answer for myself. I, I seem to sort of think like I keep three days in my head, but uh, there are certainly patients that I've had resolve, you know, on day four and day five. So I think it's a, it's a hard thing to hard thing to know. And the other issue behind all that is uh, the patients that you just can't approach their abdomen for some of the most of the issues that Levi just mentioned. Just a terribly hostile abdomen, and you you may not be able to operate successfully. You may even try to operate and just can't get in and, and try to avoid uh, doing more damage, and then you're going down a whole different pathway, which is probably outside the scope of this conversation. Okay. Well, uh, Levi, any other questions that you have? No, I think this has been excellent. Uh, all, all good points, all good discussion. Yeah, I hope this has helped raise awareness of this technique. I think, you know, in my own personal practice, having adopted this based on Martin's research, it, it's, it's changed the way that I practice for sure, and I think I think for the better. I think you know, patient care is better, and it's certainly more timely. It seems like we're sort of making decisions sooner, and length of stays are going down, and things like that. So, I've definitely uh, seen improvement in my practice. So, uh, Martin, thanks, thanks a lot for your time and uh, your insights and and your experience. Uh, appreciate appreciate all that you've uh, brought for us today. You bet. No, thanks for having me. It's been a real honor and privilege. And Levi, thanks as well. Yep, no problem. I'm glad Sounds to be like here. We may drum up some business for your unofficial post-bariatric complication fellowship. <laughs> yeah, bring it on. The more people we have, the better. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. You bet. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.